Pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Chris. Well, friends, uh, please, as I said, do keep that um, open there in front of you as we spend uh, the next little while, I don't know, an hour and a half or something like that. Did I tell you? You didn't ask that question in the interview, Jane. It won't be that long. Um, Can I actually just say, I've said it before, but I just want to say again, thanks so much for your incredibly warm welcome of of Peter and I and our family. It really has been just a a great delight to be getting settled in here at Trinity Church Brighton. Uh, For those of you who were here last Sunday, you might remember Matt's a little interview of us, just some of those get-to-know-you kind of questions. And he had a great question, which I thought was actually would be really helpful for us to think about this morning, for all of us to think about. In that interview, he said, oh, well, he asked me what, the, what, the, what I had been praying for us as a church community. And I had to give that some thought. He was kind of give me some you know, advance notice of all of the various things that are running through our mind as we think about settling in with a new church community. I mean, it has actually genuinely been really good, reading through Ephesians in my own quiet time, to, to just step back and ask God the simple things that he might help us to be a church that is totally captivated by his goodness to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But I wonder how you would answer that question. What would you say is your prayer for us as a church? I think it's a great question because it it helps us to reflect on the things that we're most passionate about as a church. Well, the reason I think it's really helpful for us to think about this morning is I reckon we've just read how the Apostle Paul would answer it. We've just read the big prayer that he had for the Christian people in the city of Ephesus. And it's a great prayer for us to dig into. And as a brief spoiler alert, as we make our way through this, I think we are going to see, and hence the theme of our time together, just the remarkable joy it is to simply know God. Now, it is helpful to set some context. Uh, We're reading the book of Ephesians, right? Which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Christian church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, I think we've got a slide up here so that we can see, courtesy of Google Maps, some idea of where Ephesus is. Don't expect to read too many of the tags there, but hopefully you can recognise the Mediterranean Sea. And if you Google archaeological site of Ephesus, Google flags it for you. Uh, Paul knew this city and he knew this church because he planted it in the early 50s, just 20 years or thereabouts after Jesus' death and resurrection. And while Paul was an itinerant church planter, he he went all around the northern coast of the Mediterranean there. He moved around a lot and yet he had his longest stay in the city of Ephesus for just about three years. And during that time, they shared a lot of life together. They suffered together. 
And in fact, Paul's time in Ephesus came to a really dramatic end when he was booted out of town by people who were opposed to the gospel. He had to leave, but they were left behind, kind of dealing with the fallout. We can read all about that in Acts chapter 18 through 20, if you're interested. And it seems that this letter to the Ephesians was written when Paul was in prison in Rome, about five years after he had left them. Thanks, we can pull down the map. Now, apart from kind of interesting background... I think that is all really helpful for us to keep in mind because it, it helps us to appreciate the heart that Paul had for this group of people. He knew them and he loved them. But he also knew that there'd been a passage of time since he'd seen them and, and we'll see that Paul knew he couldn't take for granted that everything was going well. Like all Christians, like he knew that they would face a whole bunch of challenges that might undermine their faith in Christ, that, that might distract them from their purpose in Christ. And I think we can see that heartfelt concern come through as Paul begins to tell them about the prayers that he's praying for them. You know, we read last week that Paul's just been overflowing in this, this delight, this praise in, of God and his incredible blessings to us in Christ. And now he wants to encourage the Christians with the way that he's been praying for them. I'm picking it up in verse 15, please read it with me. Paul said, for this reason, that is because God has overflowed in his blessings in Christ. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Paul loves these guys and so he is genuinely glad to hear that they are standing firm in the faith, trusting in Jesus, loving God's people. It's good news that he does not take for granted and so he gives thanks to God. And right at the outset, we, we're reminded this is yet another one of God's great blessings, that he holds us close, that he grows us in love and so isn't it good to remind each other when we're praying for people? Because we remind each other that we depend on God, even for that. It gives us opportunity to honour God when we see Him at work in us and, and through us. But Paul quickly moves on. He's not just giving thanks, but there is something very particular that he is praying for these people that he loves. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, Carl, can you keep that on screen for us? Because I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at that. This is essentially the core of what Paul prays. And first, it's helpful for us to see just how simple it is. What does Paul actually want to happen? That you may know him better. Of all the things that Paul could have prayed for this church that he knows and loves, that is what he prayed. I mean, Ephesus, that was a tough place to be a Christian. It was a booming financial center. It was full of all of the temptations of luxury and wealth. It was a massively multicultural city that was famous for, for some really big temples, big centers of worship to a whole variety of gods. To be a Christian in Ephesus was to stand out from your neighbors who thought and lived very differently to you but of all of the things that Paul could have prayed for those people it's so simple that you may know God better well that's the first thing to note but second with it still on screen do you see how this is a distinctly Christian prayer now you might think that's the most obvious thing you could say like, of course it is it's in the Bible right it's, it's Christian but I think it's worth saying because it's not 
enough to just want to know a God better, as if all gods are worth knowing, which is exactly what their neighbours in Ephesus would have thought. Rather, this is the distinctly Christian God, the God of the Bible, who is three in one. Do you see how that's embedded in, in this verse? Without Paul even using the word Trinity, it's kind of saturating it. He's praying to the glorious Father, who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he prays that the Father would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, to be clear, as Christians, the Ephesians have already received the Holy Spirit, but Paul is asking for an expression of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in them, that they would have wisdom and revelation to know God better. This is a distinctly Christian prayer, that the only God worth knowing would make himself known, the one who is Father and Son and Spirit. Now, I think we get caught up with with all sorts of different things that we might pray for ourselves, pray for each other, pray for our church. But I love the simplicity of this, that you may know God better. But it's actually pretty bold, isn't it? It's, It's hanging a lot on the assumption that if you know God better, then all of the other things will just fall into place. The things that Paul might want for the Ephesian church, they'll fall into place. He, he'll go on and write, write chapters about how he wants them to live in light of knowing God, but he knows that it all flows out of knowing God better. I'd love us to share that same kind of confidence, that same kind of passion for knowing God. So Paul's prayer is simple, but he goes on to show just how profound it is what it means for them to be given a spirit of revelation and wisdom that they may know God better. Because in the spiritual supermarket of Ephesus, which, believe me, has, has heaps in common with kind of Adelaide as we live in it now, you could come up with all kinds of assumptions about what a, a prayer for a spirit of wisdom and revelation might mean. But Paul is really clear about how he wants to see the spirit at work. Let's look at it together. Verse 18, he prays, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. If you happen to have the outline there on your phone from the Sunday Hub, you'll see that we're we're going to look at those three points. They're very helpful because Paul is highlighting for us that God needs us to see three things if we're going to get to know him better. If we long to know God better, first, let's be praying this, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you. Have you noticed how much our world is craving for hope? It's looking for it everywhere, in every way that it can, because it seems that hope is constantly under threat. We're running an election campaign at the moment, People are anxious about the cost of living. I can appreciate that because we hope for comfort. We hope for intimacy. We chase after it in all kinds of broken relationships. We hope for satisfaction. And so we jump from one experience to another, craving for something satisfying. We hope for a deep sense of contentment in who we are. And so we tag ourselves with with relationship status and and identity markers that this relentless pursuit to find our authentic selves. And all of that's without even mentioning COVID or an international conflict. We live in a war that craves hope, that hopes against all of the odds that there might actually be a reason to hope. 
And Paul prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. (laughs) Friends, what great news. This isn't a hope that we have to create for ourselves or discover hidden under a rock somewhere. It is the hope that we've been called to. It's the hope that God speaks to us of in the Bible. It is the hope that we have in Christ. As Paul Harrington said, that that drumbeat of the first half of chapter 1. It's a hope for the present. Because Jesus said that he'll be with us to the very ends of the age. That our Heavenly Father knows every hair on our head and he loves to give good gifts. That the Spirit is with us to teach us and shape us. It's a hope for now. But in a world that is just totally captivated with the now, the hope that we have in Christ goes far beyond now into all eternity. And isn't that just truly wonderful to pause on, to to ponder? Because all of those other hopes that I mentioned earlier on, they're they're good things to hope for. They're God-given hopes for comfort and intimacy and satisfaction and and a sense of belonging and identity and the the hope that life isn't eaten away and torn apart by death. They are good, God-given hopes. It's just that we need to know where we find that hope, the hope that He has called us to in Christ. Now, as I've been reflecting on this, I thought there's so many different ways that this kind of hits the ground for us, I think. But I just want to pick on one way that I think this might play out for us as a church. I want to get you thinking through the impact uh, that this has on how we relate to the children in our church. Not just your own, if you have them, but the children of our church. For one thing, we want them all to know that there is more to this life than just this life, right? I had to look it up. The average life expectancy in Australia is around 82 years. But we want our kids to know that God offers a hope that extends far beyond that. So, for example, those of us who are parents or perhaps the grandparents amongst us, we want to we set an example that we are people who, who, who are concerned for something beyond our material comfort, our financial security, because we've got a much bigger planning horizon than our retirement. Now, I say this as a pastor, but don't get me wrong. As a dad, I find this incredibly challenging. I love stuff. I love good food, a nice glass of wine. I have a shed full of tools and toys that are really... It's stuff. It's all about the comfort in the here and now. I have to work really hard at modelling to my kids a hope that extends beyond the present and the backyard. And I'm convinced that for Peter and I, as the the Marshman family, it is vital that we are in a community of believers, that's you, that are are constantly turning to God's Word and and reminding and encouraging each other of the hope that we've been called to that goes far beyond the material, far beyond the now. But not just as parents, as a whole church. Whether it's in the way that we pray for each other in in the big days at Brighton, the way that we serve each other at a cost to ourselves, the the courage that we share in sharing the gospel. We want our kids, the kids of our church, to come and know the God who loves us so much that he, He sent His Son to fix this mess that we've got ourselves in, that we could know a true and certain hope in Christ. And the kids of our church will only know God truly if they know Him as the one who gives us hope for all eternity. That's why week by week we've got to keep thinking through what difference does it make? The 
the way that we go about life, the things that we worry about, the things that we plan for. Because knowing God better means knowing the hope that He's called us to. That's part one of Paul's prayer. That God helps us to know Him by enabling us to see that He is the great hope giver in Christ. Well, there's more. Continuing from verse 18. Thanks for keeping it on the screen for us, guys. Paul prayed that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, while that's on the screen, at first glance, you might think, oh, Paul's just kind of repeating himself, using a different image to capture the idea. Now that hope, it's an inheritance for us when Jesus returns. Look closely, because that's not what it says. It's true, it's just not the point that Paul's making. I hope that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's not our inheritance, it's his It's not for his people, it's in his people. I want you to see the profound beauty of this. God views his people as his inheritance. Now, to be clear, it's not like God's waiting for his old man to kick the bucket so finally he can get his inheritance. Of course not, he's God. But if you think of inheritance as the thing that is so precious, it must stay in the family. The thing that is just so precious that he delights in so much that he won't let anything separate him from it. It's his inheritance. That is the amazing grace of God. That he would view sinners like you and me as his inheritance. If that seems surprising to you, don't worry. It's been surprising every time God has described his people in this way in the Bible and he's done it a lot. We could go right back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, 3,000 years before Jesus. Can you chuck this up on the screen for us? It's in their slides there somewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses has just brought the people out of Egypt, this is how he described them. As for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. It is mind-blowing that God took that confused, selfish, cranky, short-sighted, ungrateful bunch of people, because they're just like the rest of us. God took them and he brought them to to himself to to be the people of his inheritance, the ones that he would never let go of, that, that he would stand by forever. And down through the ages, whether it's been through you know, struggle and hardship or, or, or persecution or, or the rebellion and sin and, and the grief of that, this is the confidence that God's people rest in. The knowledge of the character of God that He takes His people and He will never let them go. Psalm 94, I think I'll chuck this in next. The Lord will not reject His people. He will never forsake His inheritance. And Paul prayed that God would enable the Ephesians to know him better by seeing the certain hope that God called them to and the steadfast love that God holds them with. We will only know God better if we are growing in our knowledge of his steadfast love for us. That regardless of what we've done, if we're in Christ, we are his treasured possession, the inheritance that he will never forsake. Now... I hope your minds are ticking over and thinking through. In a world of kind of self-help and self-esteem, I think this is, this is transformational. I know it from my own experience. As a young man, I'd grown up in a Christian family 
coming to realize that God loved me based on his character, not mine. That was, that was both incredibly challenging and wonderfully comforting. It was challenging because I said I'd grown up in a Christian family, right? So I knew arrogant wasn't a good look. So I'd never say it out loud because it sounded arrogant. But I thought I was a pretty good kid. So coming to realise that God, he didn't love me because I was fantastic, but simply because he was faithful. was profoundly challenging. It challenged me to... To be honest, that at the core, I was just as rotten as the next person. Actually, only worse, because I had the arrogance to think that I had it all together, right? But what a comfort. That God loved me because of who he is. Not because I've managed to impress him. And I think it was out of that 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 grew this deep desire to just know him more. to, To read his word daily. And to have every day impacted by the way that he saw me as his treasured inheritance that he would never walk away from or reject, even if I bummed the next exam or who knows what I might get wrong in life. Now that was an identity I could build my life upon. Friends, our world has all kinds of really kooky ideas about what defines your identity and your worth. From family to sexuality to career, this world is so confused about how we should think about ourselves. But here in Ephesians, God just gives this simple snapshot, this wonderful perspective on how he sees us. That in Christ, you are God's treasured inheritance. And knowing that helps us to know him better because it it shows us that, that he is the God of grace who holds onto his inheritance with a steadfast love. And so I think that means that in a world that is constantly screaming at us, so many voices about the things that should define us, this is one of the biggest reasons for the daily devotion. That we'd sit at his feet, that we'd long to hear his voice reminding us how he sees us, which teaches us what he is like. A God of an amazing love. A never-ending, never-giving up, always and forever love, as a wonderful kid's Bible that we have at home puts up the God who calls you his precious inheritance. And I want to pray for us as a church that we'd we'd stay hungry to know that God, hungry to know him better. So that's the first two parts of Paul's prayer, but I want to be honest. So far, this could seem a bit like just a sentimental pipe dream. And if you're here with us today, maybe you're visiting, you're checking out Jesus, you're checking out church, I want you to feel like it's okay to just feel a little sceptical at this point if you're thinking, gee, this is all very easy to say when there's, what have we got to show for it? Can I say, we are delighted that you're here amongst us if that's your situation and I want you to keep asking your questions. Come and chat with me afterwards if you've got them or with the people sitting around you. But I think it's helpful for us all to know that this is far more than just wishful thinking because it's based on another attribute of God that has been just kind of writ large, put out there, demonstrated in the pages of history. That God is faithful to the promises that he has made to give us his hope, that that he's actually not just a sentimental God of love, but he has power to back it up. You see that in Paul's third part of his prayer. It's there in Ephesians 19, and in fact, he kind of gets, he trips over himself to make the point, doesn't he? Where he prayed that the Ephesians would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And it's not just lip service. 
This is the power that's been demonstrated in history when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection that we celebrated on Easter Sunday. Now, as an aside, I want to acknowledge that there's a whole conversation about whether the resurrection of Jesus is actually a reasonable thing to believe in. That, In fact, as Christian people do, you could hang your whole life on it. If, if that's the kind of thing you're wrestling with, I'm delighted that you're here and you're wrestling with it rather than just throwing it to one side. Um, if you make use of the little link to the Sunday Hub sermon outline, little link there to a really helpful, partly because it's short, so therefore realistic to read, really helpful article that Des Smith, um, uh, another one of the senior pastors in the Trinity Network, recently published, uh, on just why it is entirely reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Des himself was a lawyer before medicine. Read the article. I think you can kind of see his analytical mind shining through. It's very helpful, but back to Paul's prayer. At this point, Paul doesn't hold back, does he? In fact, he goes on for another four verses to try and sum up the immense power of God that didn't just revive Jesus only for him to die, you know, 10 years later or something like that. But he was raised from the dead, never to die again, seated above all authority with the very power of God himself. So knowing God better means knowing him in his power. His power to act on that hope that you have in him. His power to hold you fast. So at this point, I'm going to leave you with a question. We're finishing up with a question. It's in the sermon outline on the hub there for you. I want you to kick it around over coffee, think it through this afternoon, chat about it in your growth group or your family devotions. How would your life look different if we really trusted that God has the power to follow through on his promises? How would your life look different if you really trusted that God had the power to ensure that death is not the end. We have a hope that endures beyond it. That the richest experiences, the most intimate relationships of your life might not actually be in this life, but the glory of the life to come. How would that change the way that you spend your time, your money, the things that you worry about, the kinds of plans that you make? How would your life look different if we really trusted that God has the power to follow through on his promises. So I'll be praying that as a church, we'll share the Apostle Paul's passion to know him better so that God would enable us to see the great promises that he has given us in Jesus that fill us with hope, the love that he has for us in Jesus and his immense power to make it all happen. And I hope you're as excited as I am to get to know that God. He's awesome. Let's pray. Loving God and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us into your family through faith in Jesus and that you grow us in faith and in love. And so by your Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to see the great hope of your promises to us in Jesus the steadfast love you have for us as your treasured inheritance and your very great power to do what you say you will do. And so in all of this, we pray that you would grow in us a simple passion to know you better. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.